George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Tony McDade. These are some of the most recent publicized deaths of unarmed black people dying at the hands of police that have led to nationwide and international protests, those that have been described as riots and uprisings. But these personal and national human losses are not the only reason for the protests we're seeing. Beyond what the news shows us day after day, beyond the killings we've witnessed through the screens of our phones, there is still an invisible machine embedded in America, one that changes shape with each generation, but also, in many ways, stays the same. For this episode, we're going to try to give you information that's relevant to what's going on today and why this collective rage is exploding the way that it is. We believe that context and understanding are extremely powerful and that the truth of our past reveals the truth of our present. Through slavery, through the Black Codes and Jim Crow, through the civil rights movement, the war on drugs, stop and frisk in the 94 crime bill, our unprecedented mass incarceration, and the history of policing, we hope that this can be a short introductory guide, a timeline of America and the long, hard path that has gotten us to where we are. There is a lot of frustration and conversation around the idea that slavery was a long time ago and that equal rights were achieved in the 1960s. And now we are equal, one race, and come on, the past is in the past, right? But we inherit our present just as people inherit family heirlooms. And these long-term oppressions exist in the very fabric of our justice system, our government, our culture, and the biases that we all inherit ourselves. Of course, we know that West Africans were stolen from their land and brutalized on ships coming to America all the way back in 1619 and would go on to build much of America with their bare hands under the abusive eyes of slaveholders. But slaveholders told a story of happy and contented workers who were of a lower animal order, put on earth by God to serve the white elite. Southern newspapers painted slaves as monsters and even witches who mixed chicken blood with the dirt of graves and drank a toast to killing every white man, woman, and child. In this way, the oppressed took on a sinister quality, leading to white people feeling that black submission was noble, necessary, and even condescendingly kind and generous. The Southern elite also created the categories of race we know today in order to prevent poor whites who were often indentured servants and black slaves from joining together in revolt. They did this by making whiteness an illustrious category, a category that was better. And suddenly, these poor white indentured servants who'd been working alongside black slaves found pride in their race, this race that connected them with the rich. The fear of law enforcement, the suspicion of the police, is based not only in modern statistics, but also in the entire history of the development of policing itself. 
Before there was an official governmental force, the policing was essentially volunteer, militia-esque groups of armed, poor, and middle-class white men who were provided incentives to return escaping slaves. Their other job was to break up gatherings of the enslaved to prevent the Southern plantation owner's greatest fear, an organized slave uprising. As the Underground Railroad helped 100,000 enslaved men, women, and children escape to Canada, the first organized state-sanctioned police patrols of the South were created. Right before the Civil War, the federal government would pass the Fugitive Slave Act, known to abolitionists as the Bloodhound Bill, named for the dogs used to attack those who were escaping toward freedom in the North. These early police were mounted on horses carrying guns and whips and were actually required to arrest any person suspected of being a runaway slave. If they failed to do so, the officer became liable to pay a fine of $1,000, which would be $31,000 today. But if they did catch a runaway slave, they would receive hefty bonuses and promotions. Even officers in the North, where slavery was less accepted, were required to capture suspected slaves or face monetary fines. These laws even extended to citizens themselves, who were also required to report or even capture runaways, receiving monetary rewards when they did. More moderate abolitionists in the North had to make a choice when faced with the required participation personally in the institution of slavery, upholding the law or keeping their integrity intact by helping black folks with food, housing, and their eventual escape, taking on the personal risk of fines, jail time, and violence. The Fugitive Slave Act is considered one of the main catalysts for the Civil War that would come just 10 years later. After the eventual fall of the Confederacy and the repeal of the Fugitive Slave Act in conjunction with the Emancipation Proclamation, entire regions in the South reverted to white militia tactics with state-sanctioned slave patrollers that would eventually inspire terrorist groups like the Ku Klux Klan. During the post-war Reconstruction era, the former Confederate states enacted what we call Black Codes in order to keep Black people as disenfranchised and as uninfluential as possible. These laws, too, existed in the North because, though the North did not believe in slavery, they also did not believe in total equality. The harsher of these laws prohibited black people from voting, from bearing arms, from marrying white people, from learning to read and write, and even from gathering in church or worship groups. The laws allowed the arrest of freed people for minor infractions, real or contrived, with a punishment of involuntary labor, creating a system similar to slavery, and the grueling work would often lead inmates to die before completing their sentences. Sentences that were always far higher for black people than for the poor whites who were also targeted. At the same time, we see the first drug laws emerge in a nation formerly neutral to hard drugs like cocaine and morphine, often using them inside their own quackery tonics. 
But at the turn of the century, the media started to paint a picture of black men as cocaine-crazed monsters, impervious to police bullets, so impervious, in fact, that they had to upgrade their weapons. Also presenting these men as primary sexual threats to white women, with cocaine blamed for the rebellion of black people against white authority even though white people used the drug at similar or even greater rates. By the 1920s, the attention turned to cannabis, and the first commissioner of the newly formed Federal Bureau of Narcotics, Harry Anslinger, wrote that, quote, Reefer makes darkies think that they're as good as white men. Again, he invoked the idea of the black sexual predator, saying that weed made white women more likely to succumb to the advances of black men and even become pregnant with their children. All the while, doctors and scientists were telling Anslinger that his claims were completely bogus, but he continued to rail against his dissenters as unscientific, pointedly targeting black entertainers and harassing, until the end of her life, black singer Billie Holiday. Through exaggerated propaganda, Anslinger was able to get something called the Marijuana Tax Act, passed under President Roosevelt, which essentially made the drug illegal. And in the first year under the new law, black people were three times more likely than whites to be arrested for possessing weed, even though white people used the drug at similar or even higher rates. At the same time, the new laws of the Jim Crow era were laying the foundation for the separate but equal concept that continued to disenfranchise black folks into the mid-20th century. Tensions arose after white soldiers returned from World War I and clashed with the new influx of black folks in northern urban areas after what was known as the Great Migration. This conflict, ignited by unemployment and racism, erupted into a violent wave of domestic terrorist attacks on black people, often public lynchings in which anyone deemed a criminal, those who are often, often falsely accused, could be publicly hanged, burned, shot, stabbed, castrated and beheaded, dragged through town or placed purposefully in public places as a means of intimidation, with crowds of hundreds, even thousands, cheering on these actions, men, women, and children. The police and politicians rarely interfered, and more than 90% of those who were involved in these lynchings never faced prosecution. As these brutal conflicts continued, the Ku Klux Klan became suddenly kind of revered by a lot of white Americans. The landmark film Birth of a Nation aided in reviving the Klan during the late 1910s, depicting a melancholy plight of Southern whites during Reconstruction and painting Black people as lazy, immoral, violent, sexually dangerous for white women, and generally unworthy of freedom. Toward the end of the film, the heroes gallop in, the Ku Klux Klan, saving vulnerable white women from the white actors in full black face. Woefully, the film was a box office smash, and it still boasts a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, and it was reportedly the first film ever shown at the White House. 
If you can take a moment to imagine, this brand new KKK rebranded themselves as a kind of fun, down-home KKK. They sponsored baseball teams and county fairs, and they were photographed together on Ferris wheels in their full-hooded regalia. They sponsored fraternities and hosted beauty pageants, one of which was called Miss 100% America. As the terrorism of the Klan and of regular white Americans continued, the hatred would simmer into a series of horrifying riots in 1919, what is referred to as the Red Summer. In Chicago, a young black boy was stoned to death for swimming in a whites-only lake, and a white mob proceeded to destroy black homes and businesses, leaving a thousand homeless. In Elaine, Arkansas, a group of black sharecroppers at a union meeting were attacked by white planners who accused them of spreading socialism. A white mob proceeded to attack black members of the community indiscriminately, claiming upwards of 200 lives. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, there was a place known as Black Wall Street, a bustling neighborhood of black doctors, lawyers, and business owners. The existence of this black affluence angered much of the state, and the Klan, as well as other white Americans, marched into town as the sun set due to a fabricated story of a black teenager's sexual assault on a white woman. Local black men took up arms to protect the young man, but they couldn't protect anyone from what came next. Private aircrafts, likely aided by law enforcement, dropped bombs all over the Greenwood community, absolutely destroying it. As many as 300 died, 800 were injured, 6,000 were arrested, 191 businesses were destroyed, and an estimated 10,000 black residents became suddenly homeless, forced to spend the winter living in tents. Still, despite all the evidence to the contrary, the media and politicians dubbed it a Negro uprising. By World War II, black soldiers had been allowed into the military, but when they returned, they were not received with the celebration and honor of their white counterparts, but instead with hatred, violence, and further disenfranchisement through the denial of the same benefits that white soldiers were given. The suburbs were largely created for returning World War II soldiers and their families, but black families were banned from living there. And when a black family did find their way into one of these neighborhoods, they were met with white mob violence, threats, property damage. People burned crosses at elementary schools and blasted patriotic music at their houses throughout the night. Teenagers would throw rocks and even Molotov cocktails. Their phones would ring day and night with threatening slurs, and they were hard-pressed to ever go outside without seeing at least a small group of people gathered to protest their very existence. It was unceasing and terrifying intimidation that would eventually lead most Black families to move away. The Klan would be relatively well-received yet again as integration began to allow black people into previously all-white spaces, especially into local schools. 
In addition to these hordes of white adult men and women attempting to scare black children away from schools, scores of black homes and churches were firebombed and lynchings were still occurring. Like that of 14-year-old Emmett Till, who was violently beaten, tortured, and shot after being falsely accused of offending a white woman by flirting with her in Chicago in 1955. Emmett's mother made a painful choice. She decided that America needed to see what white supremacy had done to her son, and she allowed an open casket during Emmett's funeral, which was photographed and shared in newspapers and magazines across the nation, certainly adding strength to the civil rights movements that were to come. When 250,000 people joined the March on Washington on August 29, 1963, and listened to Martin Luther King's emotional I Have a Dream speech, there was very little police intervention, likely because of the large white presence and celebrities like Bob Dylan performing. But it was events three months earlier in Birmingham, Alabama, that gave the March on Washington the momentum it needed. Civil rights activists had launched a series of peaceful protests like lunch counter sit-ins, marches on City Hall, and boycotts of segregated businesses. The KKK retaliated against these peaceful actions by joining with the local police to target organizers with planted bombs at the church of Reverend A.D. King, who was Martin Luther King's brother, as well as at the hotel where Dr. King and others had been staying as they organized the Project C campaign, which included the peaceful protests I just mentioned. News of this collusion between police and terrorists prompted local black people to first peacefully protest and then, when they were met with more police violence, to riot. They burned businesses and they fought cops in the streets. Police used attack dogs, high-pressure fire hoses, and made mass arrests, including Dr. King. They also deployed the domestic military, a choice considered controversial by the public. As criticism grew of the way that black people had been treated by the police and the federal troops, public and political pressure mounted from black people and white allies, directly leading President Kennedy to propose the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which would later be passed by President Johnson. The campaign in Birmingham would officially end in May when officials released those who were jailed for protesting and finally agreed to remove racial restrictions from the city, desegregating bathrooms, water fountains, and lunch counters, as well as creating a biracial committee to oversee job improvement for black Americans. In 1967, the President's Commission on Law Enforcement and the Administration of Justice would speak on the violence that seemed rampant during the various movements of the 1960s. Quote, the police, particularly in the South, have sometimes themselves attacked peaceful and clearly legal demonstrators with excessive force and have failed even to try to protect demonstrators from violent attack. Nonetheless, 
Right after the March on Washington, white supremacists retaliated with 15 sticks of dynamite that were planted in the 16th Street Church of Birmingham, killing four black girls who were putting on their robes to sing in the choir. 14-year-old Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, and Carol Robertson, and 11-year-old Denise McNair, and 22 others, including many children, were severely injured in the blast. The Klansmen were identified, but just before they could be prosecuted, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover quietly ended the investigation. But the riots in Birmingham, the peaceful protests of Project C, and the March on Washington led to many other major changes. In 1965, the Voting Rights Act prevented efforts to suppress the minority vote. But when Martin Luther King was assassinated in April of 1968, perhaps the most extreme and widespread riots in American history touched 150 cities, with the National Guard deployed all over the nation. Four days later, the Fair Housing Act of 1968 was passed that prevented discrimination in renting, selling, and buying homes. But it was not enough to quell the unrest. And it seemed that white Americans were still unsure of what exactly was going on. Polls were showing that the vast majority of white Americans did not believe that these riots were caused by inequality. In fact, when asked what the cause of the uprisings were in a Minnesota poll, 32% said racial discrimination, while 49% said hoodlums. That year, Richard Nixon would win the presidential election on a platform of law and order. In 1966, Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale founded an organization called the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense in Oakland, California, after the assassination of Black radical activist Malcolm X, as well as a police murder in San Francisco of a Black unarmed teenager named Matthew Johnson. They saw black anger as a force that could be turned into political power, and they believed that the only way to combat the institutional racism of the civil rights era police force was to arm themselves with rifles and carry them openly through the streets, watching over police interactions with black folks as an intimidating force. Shortly thereafter, the California Assembly proposed a law to ban the open carry of guns. J. Edgar Hoover would go on to call the Panthers, quote, the greatest threat to the internal security of the country after several violent encounters with police and white supremacists. But there was more to the Black Panther Party than the politicians and the media were presenting. They weren't just attempting to intimidate white supremacy with guns. They were also instituting revolutionary programs on the basis of their 10-point plan, which they summarized as land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. They created the free breakfast program for children after learning that kids who ate breakfast performed better in school. They fed 20,000 kids in just one school year in order to, quote, shed light on the government's failure to address child poverty and hunger. The government, however, saw these programs as a means to spread panther propaganda. 
COINTELPRO was the FBI's collection of tactics to bring down what they considered radical political groups, and they used these resources to intimidate sponsors, participants, supporters, and the owners of churches and community centers where these programs were being held. Reports even describe police breaking into the churches of Chicago where the free breakfast programs were to take place and destroying all of the food. Soon after, Chicago Panther chairman, 20-year-old Fred Hampton, created the Rainbow Coalition with the Young Lords, a former Latino gang-turned-civil rights group who used mass education, community programs, direct confrontation, and occupation to meet the same needs that the Panthers were seeking. In addition, a local low-income white group of self-described hillbillies known as the Young Patriot Organization had traveled away from extreme poverty in Appalachia due to horrible working conditions and pay orchestrated by corporate coal companies. The group would eventually find common ground in inequalities, poverty, hunger, lack of education and work, and police brutality. At first, Fred and the Panthers were faced with the Confederate flag waving of these hillbillies, and they tried to explain why this symbol was so offensive to black people when to the young patriots it was a symbol of Southern rebellion. Fred agreed that if the group vocally denounced racism, then they could find a way to work together and they could deal with seeing the flag. Instead, though, these hillbillies chose to never fly the flag again, and together they worked against police brutality, housing discrimination, and other movements towards civil rights. In order to prevent what the government saw as a kind of insurrection, the FBI orchestrated a raid on the apartment where Fred Hampton was living. And after an informant drugged him with a barbiturate-laced dinner, they stormed in and killed the 21-year-old in his bed with two shots to the head in the vicinity of his pregnant partner. Almost 100 shots were fired by police, while only one shot was fired by the Panthers, which a later investigation proved to be accidental. The next day, the police held a press conference claiming that they had been attacked by the, quote, violent and extremely vicious Panthers, that they had acted in self-defense, and they were praised for their, quote, remarkable restraint, bravery, and personal discipline in not killing all the Panthers present. The seven surviving members were indicted on charges of attempted murder. Lyndon B. Johnson's 1965 Law Enforcement Assistance Act was already in full swing, providing a federal funding stream to increase the strength and size of local law enforcement and to provide police departments with military-grade equipment. And then Richard Nixon, partially out of his true dislike of drugs, but also as an intentional plan to combat the hippies and the civil rights activists, ramped up the war on drugs. The administration dramatically increased the size and presence of federal drug control agencies and pushed through measures such as mandatory sentences and no-knock warrants. 
He created the scheduling system for drugs as we know it, and he placed marijuana as a Schedule One, despite his appointed commission recommending it be decriminalized in small amounts. This was the beginning of the drug war and the mass incarceration that we know today. But it would be Ronald Reagan that would set us on a path to what Michelle Alexander's landmark 2010 book calls the New Jim Crow. At the beginning of his administration, cocaine was considered vogue and even elite, but crack cocaine was a cheaper version and a quicker high. Crack became popular in low-income areas, but not more popular than cocaine was in other places. In fact, crack and cocaine are chemically identical. It's just the method through which it's consumed that's different. Not only that, but in the Latin American wars, the Reagan administration funded the Contras in Nicaragua, groups that were largely responsible for the large influx of cocaine coming into the U.S., but they would take no responsibility and publicly blame the ghetto. As Reagan slashed safety nets for the poor, leading to huge increases in poverty, crime in low-income areas rose, and Reagan blamed his favorite villain, the welfare queen, creating a symbol for the exploitation of the taxpayer by the poor, a.k.a. the black poor. And then the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986 included a provision that created a disparity between federal penalties for crack cocaine and powder cocaine offenses, in which someone convicted of possessing one gram of crack would receive a sentence 100 times longer than someone possessing one gram of powder cocaine. Put another way, distribution of five grams of crack carried a minimum five-year federal sentence, while distribution of 500 grams of powder cocaine carried the same five-year minimum sentence, despite the drugs being virtually identical. Those with felony drug convictions for crack lost access to voting rights, housing rights, and employment possibilities, which all contributed to rising crime rates. Reagan's harsh drug policies not only contributed to mass imprisonment, they also blocked expansion to things like syringe exchange programs and other harm reduction policies that could have also prevented thousands from contracting HIV and dying during his time in office. And then came the egregious media urban legend of the crack baby, which essentially criminalized an entire generation of black children. A popular 1989 column said crack created, quote, a bio underclass, a generation of physically damaged cocaine babies whose biological inferiority is stamped at birth, destroying the unique brain functions that distinguish human beings from animals. Even years later, news networks and talk shows ran specials as these children aged into kindergarten about what these monstrous, animal-like, and violent children were going to do to the school system and the nation at large. 
Later scientific research would show that no specific disorders or conditions have been found to result from mothers using cocaine while pregnant. In fact, the effects can be most easily compared to tobacco and far less severe than drinking alcohol while pregnant. As police presence rose in the inner city, more than 80% of people arrested for crack during this period were black, despite using and selling cocaine and crack at similar or lesser rates than white people. All the while, these policies were having no effect on the use of drugs or drug overdoses. In 1992, when black man Rodney King was brutally beaten by police and it was caught on tape and spread throughout the nation, the excuse that was given was that he was high on drugs and acting almost like a monster, calling back to that cocaineized black man with super strength. The civil unrest that followed would be called the L.A. riots, and they would be met with extreme police force under the direction of police chief Daryl Gates, who would go on to form D.A.R.E., a massively unsuccessful anti-drug, pro-police federal program for kids. It was under the Clinton administration that crime laws were expanded even further with the 1994 crime bill, which substantially increased police presence, money for prisons and drug courts, leading to the most people incarcerated in U.S. history. In 1996, Congress also took away lifetime access to food stamps and welfare to those convicted of drug felonies. The number of people behind bars for nonviolent drug offenses increased from 50,000 in 1980 to over 400,000 by 1997, and spending on prisons rose 595 percent between 1980 and 2013. And to this day, the United States still incarcerates people at a far higher rate than anywhere else in the world. This process is called by some the prison industrial complex, with black people five times more likely than whites to be incarcerated, with contractors as well as private prisons profiting off the labor of prisoners who are paid on average 86 cents a day. Many have drawn comparisons between the prison industrial complex and the institution of slavery. Along with these changes, First Lady Hillary Clinton's heavily implied description of young black men as a new generation of super predators helped lay the groundwork for the upping of police presence in public schools, especially those in the inner cities, leading to what is known to some as the school to prison pipeline. And then came stop and frisk laws, meaning that any person can be stopped and searched by police for reasonable suspicion. These laws had been on the books since the 1960s, but they found their peak under Mayor Bloomberg in the early 2000s in New York City. 90% of those stopped in 2017 were black or other people of color, mostly aged 14 to 24, with 70% later found to be innocent. Stop and frisk was reduced greatly when a 17-year-old black Harlem resident named Alvin recorded one of his many experiences with this program when the police stopped him for looking at them while wearing a hood. In the recording, Alvin asks why the officers are threatening him, and one responds, quote, for being a fucking mutt. 
eventually, after Alvin attempts to answer their questions with a trace amount of frustration, one says, quote, dude, I'm going to break your fucking arm and then I'm going to punch you in the fucking face. You can still find that audio online. It went viral, triggering outrage, protests, and lawsuits, and then a huge reduction in the implementation of stop and frisk. And guess what? New York City's crime rate dropped, unlike Bloomberg and conservative outlets predicted. We're all familiar with the police and vigilante killings of unarmed black men since Trayvon Martin's death and the acquittal of George Zimmerman in February of 2012, as well as the other publicized deaths of unarmed black men and women and children that followed Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Sandra Bland, Freddie Gray, Tamir Rice, among many others. These killings led to widespread protests as well as riots and also mobilized support among those inside and outside of the black community, organized through the activist group known as Black Lives Matter. This is where we are going to stop today, but this is a history that is far from complete. Our hope is that we've given you enough information here to trace your own lines through history, to see how history repeats, to take notice of what we've all inherited in language, in symbols, in biases, in laws. There is so much more to learn, and we encourage you to continue these investigations and to have conversations with those who may not understand the deep roots of the unrest that we are experiencing today. History and statistics are vital for context and understanding, but so is the act of feeling. For that, we've always turned to our poets who take what is in our minds and connect it to our hearts and our bodies to remind us of our humanity and the humanity of others. I want to leave you with this poem by Ross Gay about the death of Eric Garner, who was killed after selling loose cigarettes in the same way George Floyd was telling officers that he couldn't breathe. Here's Ross Gay with a small, needful fact. Small, needful fact is that Eric Garner worked for some time for the Parks and Rec Horticultural Department, which means perhaps that with his very large hands, perhaps in all likelihood, he put gently into the earth some plants which most likely some of them, in all likelihood, continue to grow, continue to do what such plants do, like house and feed small and necessary creatures, like being pleasant to touch and smell, like converting sunlight into food, like making it easier for us to breathe. This episode was put together by myself, Chelsea Weber-Smith, Riley Smith, Rod Rodriguez, and Miranda Zickler. And now I'm going to let Miranda give you a few book recommendations. Hi, you guys. I just have a few recommendations for further reading on the topics we covered today. These are all great books written by Black folks. And if you're having trouble finding them in print right now, I suggest downloading them in audiobook format from our friends at Libro.fm, where all your dollars go to independent bookstores. 
As mentioned in the episode, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, a civil rights litigator and legal scholar, is a seminal work about mass incarceration and systemic racism in the U.S. It's the first book I recommend to people, and if these are new topics for you, I promise it will blow your mind. You've also likely seen books authored by historian and scholar Ibram X. Kendi, who wrote Stamped from the Beginning, A Comprehensive History of Racism in America, and How to Be an Anti-Racist, which which is a kind of guidebook on exactly what it sounds like. My last recommendation is called Chokehold by Paul Butler, who describes the book as a renegade prosecutor's radical thoughts on how to disrupt the system. The poem that ends this episode is from Ross Gay's Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude. You can find all the books we use to research the show on our Instagram page or by searching the hashtag American Hysteria Book Club, which you can also use to share your thoughts with us if you're taking these deep dives into the topics we cover. Thanks for listening. Friends, hello. I'm Mike Rignetta, the host of Never Post, a new and independent news podcast about and for the internet. In addition to bringing you the latest in current events, we try to figure out why the internet and the world because of the internet is the way it is. How did influencers destroy tween fashion? What is posting disease and how do you ensure you don't catch it? From what device must one send important emails? We talk about what's going on online and ask together why. Why are we like this? Find Never Post wherever you get your podcasts.